This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, let's set the Business Week agenda, understand what investors may be thinking going into this week. Gina Martin-Adams with us, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. So, Gina, nice to have you with us. A little bit of a different tone. What are investors thinking about today? Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me. It's always good to join you guys uh, on a Monday afternoon. Uh, In terms of what investors are thinking, I think this all actually started um, as of Thursday's trade. We noticed in our chart book last week that some of the stocks that really got us into this mess, namely the technology, communications, consumer discretionary, some of those really high flyers over the summer had finally reached some um, signals of stabilization as of Thursday's trade. So we started to see a little bit of recovery in the broad market on Friday, and I think this is a lot of follow-through of that recovery, though I think it's really notable that it's not tech that's leading. And this has been part of our strategy really since the beginning of September. Our sector scorecard suggested that we were moving into a new phase of the market where the leadership would have to rotate to the sectors where we're supposed to experience the biggest economic recovery into 2021 eventually. And that means not the tech COVID sort of safety plays, but more value, cyclical type of stocks like the industrials and materials and energy. of the world. And even energy. So I think that what's happening is a bit of rotation. And finally, you get the tech sector stabilizing, so your primary source of downdraft in stocks is is stable, and that allows for the sectors that have actually been performing reasonably well, like industrials and materials, to perform um, and to continue to show that leadership. Well, and I do wonder, Gina, and first of all, we love having you, so it's a great way for us to start off our week. Um, is Do you feel like you're getting more visibility at all from CEOs? Jason and I talk to a lot of CEOs, and I still feel like there's still that, like, yeah, we don't quite know what's going you know, on into 2021. But do you feel like you're starting to get a little bit more guidance, uh, certainly when it comes to earnings and earnings growth? Yeah, I think you're getting guidance on some things, but not on others. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I, think, I think CEOs are picking and choosing very carefully where they can provide visibility, they will. For instance, you know, if you flash back six months ago, there was no visibility because there were companies were scrambling to such an extent that they were just working to survive, let alone thrive. And I think that the conversation is slowly shifting to how do we thrive, how do we do well in an environment where we do have a lot of people still working from home. There are still a lot of unemployed, but there is incremental improvement in the economy. How do we navigate an economy that's partially open but operating in a different way than a 2019 economy. It's certainly not the crisis mode that we were in in the fall, but I do think that there is a little bit more forward-looking commentary, more focus on how to grow rather than just how to survive now that we've gotten past the, the peak of the crisis period. It's about how do we navigate this new recovery you know, that said, nobody has fantastic visibility into what the economy is going to look like in a 2021, obviously. Yeah. But there are some signs of light. There are some signs of improvement. There are the CEOs that have had the experience of recovery in China and can kind of take that story of Asian recovery and, and 
place it on the Western world and say, well, where could we go from here and what does our outlook look like in a post-COVID environment? Yeah, it's also interesting, Gina, and I know this is a loaded word when it comes to to markets, but there's almost this sense of capitulation or maybe resignation that, listen, the virus is going to be with us for for some amount of time and maybe longer than we certainly thought in in March or April, but we're learning to live with it in a certain way. Obviously, the next few months are going to be um, difficult and and we don't know what to expect, but investors sort of living with it to to some extent and and getting and, and maybe understanding that the new normal is a new normal with the virus, not a new normal post virus in some ways. Yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely spot on correct. Is and that's the change in the language, right? If you think six months ago it was, okay, well this might go away soon, and then it was, okay, it's never going to go away, and now it's, well, we're going to make incremental progress to improvement, but the reality is we're not going to go back to 2019 anytime soon. Yeah, it's not going to just completely go away, but it also is not going to be crisis mode forever. Right. So I think we're trying to kind of trying to find that middle ground. Right. It's a little bit more about realism and assessing where the realistic outlook is. At the same time, there obviously is a lot of fireworks coming out of Washington. I mean, you've got everything from what? The to what, what? The Come on, Gina. <laughs> it's amazing how much we are contending with in terms of just political volatility right yeah. now. Yeah. In the midst of this virus environment. And so I think that companies are going to have to address that in the post-election period when we know who the players are in Washington. Right. Right. And we don't even know when we're going to know at this point. So uh, that even that is up for speculation. All right. Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. Great way to start the week. Chief equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joining us on the phone from New Jersey. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, global COVID-19 cases topping 33 million as infections in India reach the 6 million mark. The official death toll nearing 1 million worldwide, though experts say the real tally may be almost double that. Let's get back to someone. uh, It's been one of our, he has been one of our go-to voices uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Sandro Galea is back with us. Dean and professor at Boston University School of Public Health, author of Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations about the Public's Health. And he joins us once again on the phone from Boston. Um, Dr. Galea, so nice to have you back with Jason and myself. How are you? How's the school? Tell us how things are going. Hi, Carol. Hi, Jason. Thank you for having me again. Uh, you know, it has been uh, it has been a challenging month. I think it's a challenging month for everybody who is uh, part of an institution that is trying to balance the risks of the moment. We are uh, we as a university have been reopening cautiously, carefully, with a lot of testing, a lot of uh, contact tracing, a lot of isolation as needed, and really working hard to keep the community safe while also working on our mission and uh, continuing teaching and continuing our research. It's a tough balance. I think it's a tough balance for everybody, and and it's part of, I think, a broader societal place where we are at, where we are recognizing that we are living with COVID for some time now, and, uh, and, and we cannot afford to keep our world slow down because there are important things that we have to do. And so give us a sense of that balance, Dr. Galea. Like, what is something where you feel like you've found it in terms of either staffing or class size or yeah. doing labs? Like, give us an example of where you feel like, okay, well, this this feels about as good as we uh-huh. can get. <laughs> well, Jason, I think uh, 
I, I don't think I feel confident telling you anything is as good as it, yeah. as it can be. I think, I think everything is a work in progress, but you know, yeah. let's talk a little bit about what we're doing. So we, as a university, are testing people extensively. We have about five to 6,000 tests a day happening. So students are tested multiple times a week. Uh, we have uh, a, a lot of people who are involved both in the testing, but then also somebody tests positive and the contact tracing to see who they've been in contact with, right? So the idea is, and we had discussed this before in our previous yeah. conversations, the idea with testing is that you catch a case early so that it does not become a cluster that does not then continue the epidemic. So you find a case, you do contact tracing, you find the people around that case, you quarantine those people and you isolate the case. And of course, all of that is superimposed over a very strict regimen of building hygiene. And by that, I mean ventilation in the building, wiping down surfaces, a very strong public campaign for people to remain safe, wearing masks, making sure that people are not in if they're sick, and every day doing symptom screens for everybody. So it really is a fairly comprehensive effort. And it is, in some respects, I think the challenge is that it's a comprehensive effort that has to happen now and has to keep happening really for weeks and months until there is a definitive vaccine for COVID. Talk to me about contact tracing, because I feel like we are getting very mixed results, mixed reviews in terms of people essentially saying, yep, not going to cooperate. It's voluntary. I'm not going to tell you uh, either I don't want to get in trouble because I was at a party or I feel like it's an invasion of my privacy. How do you manage that? Well, in some respects, I think it's easier to manage that within a a closed system of yeah. one institution versus in the general population, right? So in our, in, our, in our system, we have been very clear that this is part of the cost of citizenship. If you're, if you're going to be part of the community, you have a responsibility to work towards keeping others safe. And part of that responsibility is if you test positive, is that you talk to the contact tracers and you tell them who you've been in contact with so that they can reach out to those people and make sure we keep them safe as well. It's harder to do that in the general population. There's been a lot of reports about 50% of people in general population answer and talk to contact tracers. But that's, that's in the general population where I think there isn't as much of a sense of mm. shared responsibility for one another. There should be. I'm just reflecting on probably what's going yeah. on out there. Yeah, no, that's a big part of it. I mean, Jason, you and I have talked about it. I know when my daughter got together with some classmates at the end of the summer and we had kind of quarantined her for months, you know, we as families went into it saying, okay, what have you been doing? Who's getting tested? You know, like, there was this sense of community to make sure everybody stayed safe. And I feel like, you know, there, not everybody's on the same page with that. Also, to be fair, and Dr. Galeo, you understand this, not everybody can be on the same page. There are some people that, you know, if they don't go to work, they don't get paid and it. it they're in a tougher predicament. And I just, you know, I just... Well, uh, well I think, I mean, I mean, this is why, this is why, Carol, I think the reopening is so important. I think it's, uh, you know, the data are very clear, for example, that... Uh, your chances of being able to work from home are much higher if you're in the top 25% uh, quartile of, of income. So right. people who, are, who, are, who have to go to work are people who are already making less income. We know that that overlaps with race, right? We know that uh, the, the disproportionate burden of COVID in many respects was because we exposed people with low income, people of color often, to work before we understood how COVID works. But the, the economic shutdown, I feel like the public conversation about the economic slowdown hasn't been fair because to be, to be frank... It's been, di- it's been directed by people whose livelihoods are not really at risk 
from yeah. economic slowdown because they can work from home. But the fact is, more than half the population cannot work from home. Right. So if we, if, we, if we say, if we take the, the premise that, well, we should re- reduce the risk of COVID at all costs, well, do we really mean at all costs or do we mean at all costs to somebody else? Right. And I think right. we need to be honest with that. And, 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 and economic slowdowns hurt people who are already at the low end of making income. And that is something that we as a society have a responsibility to try to avoid as much as possible. Let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Sandro Galea, Dean of the Boston University School of Public Health, also the author of the book, Pained Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. So let's talk about the public's health, uh, Dr. Galea. What can we be doing before we get to the other side of this? What should we be doing to ensure that we don't lose sight of these inequalities that have been laid bare by this pandemic? Well, Jason, I think what the pandemic has shown us, and I like your use of the term laid bare, it has shown us the inequalities that existed already before the pandemic. The country is really shaped by deep socioeconomic inequalities and deep racial inequalities. And those inequalities have health analogs, just like we have haves and have nots. We have health haves and have nots around those two axes. Now, the, the pandemic revealed that. We have uh, black Americans have two and a half times greater risk of dying during covid than white Americans. And that is largely due to the double whammy of one greater burden of disease among that black Americans had compared to white Americans. And number two, that a disproportionate number of them work in what we came to call sort of essential work, frontline work, work that exposed them to getting COVID. So to my mind, what COVID is now letting us see what was already there for us to see had we looked for it. So the question you ask is, how do we not forget this? And I think we do not forget this, frankly, by continuing to have the conversation and, and saying to ourselves, the time to fix these inequities by socioeconomic class, by by race, is not when we're under duress from a pandemic. It's when the pandemic is over, before the next pandemic. So I really think that there's going to be, and, and there should be, a reckoning with what are the forces in our society, the economic forces, the social forces, that we need to realign once the pandemic's over. You know, the metaphor that keeps running through my mind is you're on a ship going through a storm, right? And you go on a ship going through a storm and the ship is not doing well because it's leaking or because the sailors don't know what they're doing. Well, while you're going through the storm, the best you can do is try to patch up the, patch, patch up the, the prow and get your sailors to do something that's not too terrible. But really, the time when you should be fixing the ship is when you're past the storm. So you should be getting the ship ready to face the next storm. And we as a country have ignored this for for decades. So it is, I mean, if one were to be silver lining inclined, this could be a good time for reflection for us once we get past this pandemic and say, what are the structures we want to build to make the country healthier and ready for the next time? Well, what would be the structures you would build? Well, I think the big mistake, Carol, that we've been making is we conflate healthcare with health. We spend more on healthcare than any other country in the world by a lot, by about 40% more than any other country in the world. And yet, compared to other high-income countries, which is really the only fair comparison, we have the worst health indicators compared to, you know, we, we have lower life expectancy, we have higher heart disease, we have higher cancer mortality rates. Now, why is that? The, the reason that is, is very simple. It's because all our money goes into high-tech medicine that's there to cure us when we're already sick. What we need to do is we need to prevent disease before it starts. And the way to do that is by having livable wages, safe housing, availability of nutritious food, gender equity, less violence. And unless we invest in those forces, we are going to keep pumping money into healthcare, and our health is still going to lag behind. So that's at the fundamental level. It requires 
understanding what, what produces health and investing in what produces health, not just investing in healthcare. Yeah, mm. that's a really that interesting was point. So important. I like that. Uh, Dr. Sandro Galea, thank you so much. Really nice to have you back with us. We look forward to next time for sure. Dean of Boston University School of Public Health, also the author of Pained Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. And it's such an important point, Carol. Yeah. And I, I had never really heard it distilled down like that. We separate healthcare from health. We do think of, we think about it when we talk about it from an investment perspective. Well, it's the healthcare industry. But all of yeah. those things that he talked about, and education, I feel like there's a pretty clear um, path to, but nutrition, I feel like sometimes food, we separate from health. Oh, we totally right? do. But I thought what he said about livable wages, safe housing, mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily correlate right. that, right, with better health either. Yeah. But it's all intertwined. Yeah. You need no, all of all, totally, all those steps. Totally. That, that whole last thing, how he tied it up, I thought was just brilliant. Yeah. That's a T-shirt all on its own. There you go. That's like a jogging suit. (laughs) Plus socks and sneaks, I'm just going to say. Courtesy of Dr. Sandro Galea. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, I'm really excited to talk about this next story because it's just in such the Bloomberg wheelhouse and so appropriate uh, for a time when we're talking so much about It could be a Netflix series, too. And how it's managed. I know. It's so great. (laughs) Neil Weinberg, one of our favorite reporters here, a senior projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from New York, along with Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. He joins us from Massachusetts. And Joel, I feel like this is also one of these stories that's so in the Joel Weber wheelhouse, too, (laughs) because you were the editor of Bloomberg Markets before you became the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, so you understand all the intricacies of this world. Set this up for us. Uh, it's funny. It actually makes me uh, remember a, a very similar story that Neil uh, did for me once upon a time that actually goes to some similar places. And this is a story that uh, Neil spent a lot of time on, and it's uh, an, a really interesting one because it involves uh, rich people and their bankers. Um, and if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what does. Uh, but <laughs> Especially Neil, here in uh, September 2020, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. So, so Neil, let's, let's talk about this because it's not um, a story that um, goes particularly well for the rich guy, or at least it, it hasn't so far. Uh, what's, what are we talking about? No, I guess the sort of conceit of the of the story is the idea that when you're talking about private banking, the banking for the super rich, you're talking about a service that you don't get walking into your local branch office. And this goes, obviously, to things like investing and putting your money in savings accounts, but it also goes to things that can include outside investments or sports tickets or dinner reservations or private planes or you name it. Uh, and they'll arrange it for you. And the question in the story is, at what point does it stop becoming banking and become something else? At what point are the clients lulled into sort of a sense of comfort with their bankers where they're not exactly trusting but verifying? Yeah. Who are the characters that you're talking about here, Neil? In this case, we're talking about a extremely wealthy young Mexican gentleman named Moises Cosillo Espinosa, He uh, inherited a lot of money at a very young age when he was in his teens. Among his holdings is a building 59 stories on the corner of 5th Avenue and 42nd Street across from the New York Public Library, uh, to name one. Uh, So he had a lot of money at a very young age, and he was introduced to a pretty young banker, a banker who at the time was in his 20s, 
and they struck up a relationship which, uh, from our reporting, indicates that it was professional, uh, it was also social, and uh, it sort of gets into, the story gets into the dark corners of, you know, what is trust and what is appropriate uh, in, in banking and beyond. Well, and I also feel like, you know, Neil, that it, it raises questions like, are these relationships usually mutually beneficial? I mean, there's fees that the banker gets for doing transactions and so on and so forth. But I, I do wonder, there's a balance, right? And and I feel like this story gets to, did the bankers go, you know, over the line in terms of what they did? Absolutely. And obviously, you're always going to have attention in a sales environment, whether you're selling cars or computers or banking services, where the more revenue you generate for your employer probably means you'll get paid more, too, which was the case here. And on the other hand, obviously, uh, it's a good deal for a client to get a good deal. So you have to sort of strike a balance. And in this case, uh, after many years where the banker and the client were working together, the client came to the conclusion that, no, he wasn't getting good service. He was getting ripped off. Neil, another um, element that kind of stands out here is that uh, the banker in question, who obviously um, has disputed the allegations, um, wasn't like he, he stuck at one bank, right? He actually moved around and brought the client with him. Talk to us about that element. Exactly. Uh, this was a uh, banker who started in his 20s uh, after he had skied in the Olympics, of all things. Um, a, a fellow Mexican, uh, he joined Citibank. He then uh, moved for a larger pay package to Credit Suisse and ultimately ended up at Morgan Stanley in Miami, uh, where he was part of the Latin American practice. Uh, the client, uh, Moises Cosillo, followed him from one bank to the next set up a family office along the way, and uh, he, um, he hired to run his family office a, another banker who was uh, very familiar to both the banker and the client, which raised questions about uh, conflicts of interest and whether the, uh, the relationship was too cozy for comfort, or at least too cozy to work appropriately. Well, so I wonder if the problems are because the investments didn't pay off and that's why we had lawsuits because I feel like these cozy relationships maybe would be okay if everything went along fine. Is that is it a case that things didn't go so well and that's why we have lawsuits? I mean, I guess this is what we're trying to figure out. Well, it's important to say in this case, it's a hotly disputed legal uh, dispute at this point, but mm. uh, what the client is alleging in a lawsuit and uh, in a uh, private arbitration before FINRA uh, is that the bankers, he says, stepped way over the line and they were doing transactions inside the bank. Uh, in this case, the bank he is uh, pointing uh, a finger at is Credit Suisse, and he is saying that the bankers were doing transactions purely to profit themselves and their employer. In addition, he's alleging that they uh, encouraged him to get involved in outside investments, sort of private uh, private equity or private placement type of deals where they say there was a lot of self, he says there was a lot of self-dealing going on. Uh, the bankers, the one who was inside the bank and the one who was running the family office, have vehemently denied the allegations. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you talk about in this story where, you know, the, the lines blur in part because these are not always traditional straight ahead investments. And so it's hard, especially if you're not well versed in this area, to even know sort of what's cool and what is not cool. Exactly. And the other question is, at what point should a client who is uh, in control at a young age of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars or potentially more, how much attention should they pay? Uh, Should they have advisors to keep an eye on their advisors? In this case, uh, you know, exactly what happens (laughs) depends on which side you ask. But clearly the relationship went way off the rails. Yeah. Well, not surprisingly, it is one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg and will continue to be, I have to imagine, a lot of our uh, wealthier and maybe not so wealthy uh, customers are sending this to the banker being like, hey, what? can we call tomorrow? Can we check in? Can we check in? Yeah. All right, Neil Weinberg, terrific piece of reporting. Thank you so much. Senior Projects and Investigations reporter for Bloomberg. Check that story out online and on the Bloomberg. Our thanks as well to Joel Weber, Carol. It's like, whew. You got to read it too, because there is just um, some great details. Th- exactly, Mexican exactly. Restaurant and just the way art. it starts, oh. it's just wonderful. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do a little Business Week economics now. Our pal Andy Brown is back with us, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. He joins us on the phone from New Hampshire. So. I am really into this recent uh, column that you wrote, Andy, because it really brings to the fore something that I think is, dare I say, sort of hiding in plain sight when it comes to China, which is around climate change. Tell us what you took on. Yeah, so, so the central point is that when it comes to climate change, China is at war with itself. Mm. Um, you know, on the one hand, it, it's a global superpower when it comes to renewable energy, batteries, solar, wind. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, it, it, it mines and burns half the world's coal. And it, right now it has in its development pipeline power stations with a either approved or about to get the green light with a capacity equal to the entire installed coal capacity of the European Union. So, you know, it, it, in a sense, it hardly matters what the rest of the world does, um, because China is going to swamp all of those efforts. And this is why Xi Jinping's announcement last week that China was to go, is to go carbon neutral, by 2060, why it is potentially, potentially so important. Well, and I wonder, Andy, I mean, I love what you wrote, this whole idea of two titanic forces, one clean, one dirty, that are at constant war in China's fractious domestic economy. I mean, like it or not, they still use so much coal and have to, right, as being you know, kind of the manufactured to the world, they've got a lot to power. I mean, they need it to keep their economy growing. But at the same time, China is increasingly, I feel like, you know, step or as you write, stepping into a void that the US has stepped out of when it comes to, hey, world, let's all work together to protect the climate. 
Exactly. So, so coal is shrinking in the rest of the world, and it's it's rising dramatically uh, in China. But particularly now that China wants to jumpstart its economy from the the, the COVID lockdowns, it's fire up fire up the boilers. But here's the thing: China doesn't actually need all the capacity it's building. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, these these power plants that it, that, that that it's cranking out um, add to a fleet that is in massive overcapacity, about 50%. So what's happening is that China is exporting its surplus capacity to countries along its Belt and Road infrastructure mega project, including Turkey, places like Pakistan, Indonesia. And worse than that, the technology that is exporting is its most basic, most polluting, dirtiest technology. So, Andy, you mentioned President Xi Jinping earlier in the conversation. What is his role in all of this? Because more so, it feels like, than any world leader, he has not just a massive economy that he's responsible for, but he has control of that economy in a way that few world leaders do. Well, that is, that is, that is somewhat true. But, mm. I mean... Even Xi Jinping um, is subject uh, to forces that are beyond his control, um, and, and this, is, this is sort of both positive and negative. So, so if you think about why is China cranking out all these power plants, well, provincial governments need growth, right. um, and the easiest way they find to promote growth is by by, by manufacturing, uh, uh, you know, coal, coal gear. On the other hand, he's under huge domestic pressure to do something about the environment. So the legitimacy of his party state derives and has done for the past 40 years from rapid economic growth. Increasingly, people in China are saying, we want you to prioritize clean air, clean water. So that's on the sort of the public opinion side. There's also, in a more positive vein, this idea that China uh, could actually use renewable or green technologies to become a world economic leader, industrial leader. We've already talked about batteries and coal and so on. There are all these carbon capture and storage technologies that have yet to be developed. China could actually become a, a, the, the leader in these technologies of the future. So there is, there is big incentive on the negative side, and, mm. and, and this is very important to him. You know, China suffers massive drought in the north. It has yeah. floods in the south. The Yangtze, the Yangtze River has, 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 been, has been swelling. this, putting huge pressure on the Three Gorges Dam. Uh, huge parts of coastal China's manufacturing could disappear if, if, if you get rising sea levels. So it does have a, a, a great incentive to tackle climate. So will it? This is the question. So a lot of people say, well, you know, easy to say, right? Uh, climate <laughs> neutral by 2060, 40 years away. You know, that's long after Xi Jinping himself is, is going will to, will have gone to meet Marx, as they say. Yeah. Um, so, so some people say, well, talk is cheap. We will, however, find out whether there is some substance to what he said uh, by looking at the details in the next five-year plan, right. 2001 to 2025. Those will be coming out in the next few months, probably early next year. So we'll see. Um, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's, I don't think we should be, we, should, we shouldn't take this at face value, but nor, I think, should we be too skeptical. 
Right. Hmm. All right. Well, it's very smart, as always. Uh, great context for us to consider. Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. Check out his latest column, China Has a Big Climate Change Paradox. Just massive numbers, massive influence, but the scale of both the opportunity, but also the challenge, right. uh, he really laid them out nicely there. But I do feel like anytime we talk to anybody in the alternative energy space or the EV space, they bring mm-hmm. up China as being able, you know, that's a huge market and they're way ahead in many ways. We do want to mention a headline crossing, the Trump administration considering fresh sanctions to sever Iran's economy from the outside world, except in limited circumstances by targeting more than a dozen banks and labeling the entire financial sector off limits. This is according to three people familiar with the matter. Our team uh, out of D.C. Uh, reporting this. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. The story, I think it's fair to say that just about everyone who looks at the world of politics and taxes, for that matter, was really talking about was the blockbuster report in the New York Times all about President Trump's taxes over the past two decades, what he paid, what he didn't pay, maybe most importantly going forward, the debt that is coming due. Mm -hmm. As we were reading this, we thought, who could tell us what this actually means? And we came up with the perfect solution as a team. Laura Davison, congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from D.C. All right. So, Laura, 9,800 words in the main story. A lot of us read it all. You read it, though, with maybe a different eye than someone who's just like, oh, what are the politics of this? Tell us what jumped out at you here. So some of the things that it talked about, the business losses, those are sort of ordinary uses of the tax code. But in case speaking with a bunch of tax lawyers all morning, there's a bunch of things that they said, hey, that looks a little bit funky, Um, particularly the consulting fees, those so high and going to employees like Ivanka Trump, as the the report detailed. They say that uh, is is highly unusual and and probably potentially could run against uh, some some IRS rules. Other things like the, uh, the Seven Springs uh, estate in, in Westchester County. Uh, he has two different ways that he's sort of generating tax breaks off of that. One is through this conservation easement deal where he's able to generate um, a really big charitable tax deduction there. Lots of questions about whether the property was really valued correctly. The IRS has identified that sort of transaction as one that's ripe for abuse. So a lot of questions there. Also, sort of on that same property, Trump has, has listed it as an investment property for, for business purposes, for tax purposes, but also publicly in the Trump Sons have said, oh, this is our family compound on the Trump Organization website. It's listed as a family retreat. There's some discrepancies there about how, how it's being viewed kind of in the eyes of, of the tax code and then how they're actually treating it, which were things that would really uh, raise red flags for IRS auditors. One thing that jumps out is um, it also said he earned $73 million abroad in his first two years in the White House, including from authoritarian-leaning countries, as you point out in your story, such as the Philippines and Turkey, despite a pledge that he would pursue no new foreign deals while president. That's a big no-no. Yeah, and this is one thing that Democrats in particular are leaning in really hard things is why we need to see, uh, you know, more of, his, you know, the, the full extent of his tax returns. We need to have more financial disclosures. Uh, they're really pointing that as to, you know, something that could be an issue. Um, there's also, you know, some saying, look, uh, this could be an issue for Trump uh, in terms of him leaving office. He has all these connections. He, you know, there's been a lot of kind of 
confusion and question thrown into, you know, kind of will there be a peaceful transfer of power? And this sort of adds another layer of sort of confusion and murkiness around that about what Trump's ties may be to the presidency, to his businesses and, and to why kind of the stake he has in a staying in the Oval Office. So, Laura, as you were talking to tax experts today, and I guess you were texting with them last night, as we all were, you know, trying to sort of figure out what what this all means. As you had those conversations, how much of a tone of there was like, look, this is what rich guys do. They hire a bunch (laughs) of lawyers. They hire a bunch of accountants. They pay as little tax as possible. And this is just kind of an extreme example of this. I think it's a little bit more than than an extreme example. You know, they're sort of, you know, really using the tax code, uh, you know, to your advantage. And then there's maybe crossing some lines here. Is the, is the Times article details several things that, that tax lawyers said, hey, look, this is really beyond what I would advise my, my clients to do. But kind of in the in the bigger picture here, this really is a demonstration of how there are sort of parallel tax codes. One, for sort of just, you know, quote, average people who earn salaries versus if you have, uh, you know, a, a lot of different, uh, businesses and lots of different entities and, you know, can employ some smart tax people, you can really uh, save a lot more and pay a lot lower rate than someone who is, uh, you know, just filing uh, with H&R Block. But these are his actual tax forms, because it's interesting in your story, you know, that a lawyer for the Trump organization told the Times that, quote, most, if not all of the facts appear to be inaccurate. I mean, they are reporting off of his tax forms. Yes, they didn't uh, validate the forms with the Trump Organization. They decided to protect their sources to keep those um, in house, but they detailed, you know, all the all the different information that was that was listed on on those tax forms. So there seems to be a discrepancy uh, that I'm not privy to between uh, the Trump Organization and the Times. Uh, but the Times says that they, they obtained the forms uh, from a source that legally had access to them, and that you know they verified the numbers, um, you know, through through reporting on their own. What about the three hundred million dollars in loans? Um, obligations for which the president is personally responsible that are going to come due, I think, in the next couple of years. What do we know about that? So there's a lot of questions there about where those loans are tied to. Nancy Pelosi raised that today, um, House Speaker, in, as one of her concerns of, you know, you, who has those obligations and, and how might he be beholden uh, to to those debtors. Um, the other thing, too, is just sort of bigger picture. You look at Trump has a, a potentially very precarious financial situation going forward. He has these loans that will come due. He potentially could have a very big tax bill from the IRS. Uh, there's lots of questions about uh, sort of his financial situation and sort of, you know, particularly if he's still um, in the government, uh, you know, what incentives he might have to, to make sure that he, uh, you know, he doesn't fold. He doesn't have to file for bankruptcy. Right. Exactly. All right. Laura Davidson, great context. Thank you so much. Congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone from the nation's capital. Everyone trying to break down what it all means and what it means going forward, Carol. As if 2020 couldn't get any more strange. Oh, just wait. Just wait. We've got, I time. Know. We've got like the less than 100 nuts? days to go, but I still know. plenty of time. we got you know, a little plenty less than 40 days till the election. Plenty of time. Plenty of time for some more shenanigans. Don't you worry. <laughs> Don't you Don't worry. Don't you worry your pretty little head there, Ms. <laughs> exactly. Nasser. I knew where that was going. No, didn't say it. Didn't say it. I know, but just thought it. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's get to the drive to the close. Happy to have back with us Deepak Puri. He is CIO of the Americas at Deutsche Bank Wealth Management. Joining us on the phone. Deepak, really nice to have you back with us. Great. Thank you, Jason. Good to be back. So what are you seeing out there these days? We had a few kind of rough weeks and certainly a few rough days on the market last week, but a little more optimism 
today. It looks like we're going to close in the green. And we've had a couple experts uh, ahead of you come in and say, well, some of it is just some rebalancing that's going on. Some of it is optimism about the virus. Some of it is optimism about banks. What do you say? I think it's a combination of um, these things that you just mentioned, but uh, I just would like to have your listeners go to the month of August, where the markets had a very significant rally, you know, in some cases, low double digits. So I think uh, September looks like we're going to be still down for the month. Um, you know, so it warns that there was some profit taking in the month of September, which is not too out of uh, ordinary, given it's an election year. And um, and I do feel that uh, the, the Nasdaq pullback that we saw is uh, somewhat healthy because some of the froth, uh, especially in the mega cap tech names, that has been really driving not just the Nasdaq but also S&P, you know, uh, would make uh, some um, money on the sideline, um, make it a better, more appealing investment for the long run. And I don't know, Jason, did you mention this, the portfolio rebalancing? Yes, I know. Okay, so yeah, so I know our Vince Signorella had shared some some insight with both of us uh, earlier, and and talked about this, you know, month end, quarter end portfolio rebalancing. I mean, we, I mean, it's technical, but it happens, right? I mean, Deepak, that's what we see, kind of at the end of a month or end of a quarter, and we could be seeing, you know, some uh, investors, you know, kind of doing some rebalancing and bringing their asset allocations back in line. Yes, indeed. And I think, uh, you know, one should also keep in mind that uh, the entire tax regime might also be in course for a change uh, if the, there's a change in the White House, especially if there is a blue wave. You know, I don't necessarily expect that to be the first course of order, but that can potentially happen. The Biden, uh, you know, manifesto calls for an increase of taxes on both, uh, you know, long-term capital gains and ordinary dividends. So I think... Uh, might be, you know, this time around it's a normal rebalancing quarter end, but I think end of the year rebalancing this particular year might be even more severe than what we are used to in uh, other years. So when you think about sort of riding out this period, you know, we're getting closer and closer to 30 days out from the election and you alluded to some of the different plans. Do you just kind of stay still here if you're an investor and, and wait for it to play out? I mean, how do you... Uh, anticipate or, or how difficult is it going to be to just kind of do that given all the at least political and rhetorical volatility we expect to see? Yeah, I think this has been such a unique year, Jason, and I don't think uh, it's going to really uh, abate anytime soon. I think we're entering this heightened period of volatility. Normally, in a general election year, that volatility tends to go down post-election. I'm not sure that this time around that happens. You know, we have already seen this uh, rhetoric in terms of a contested election, and that might prolong the volatility. Case in point, if you look back to another contested election in 2000, you know, the S&P dropped 5% from the date of the election to the time the courts made their judgment. So, you know, what are, what is most concerning to me this time around is that, you know, think of uh, a couple of months ahead, you have a court deciding the outcome of the election and the Senate races. On top of that, somehow you get the second wave of infection, and um, there is still no tangible movement on the next COVID relief package from the Congress because everyone is so sort of uh, 
focused on uh, what's happening uh, on the election outcome. And that sort of a cocktail could be quite uh, negative for the for the risky assets. Now, that I wouldn't say that's our base case scenario, but the probability of that scenario has definitely gone up uh, over the last uh, month or so. Okay, so in terms of portfolios, fixed income, equity, how do you see it? What, what's, what's your ideal portfolio right now? Uh, to be honest, uh, it changes on a... Uh, you know, on a quite frequent basis, it hasn't. Uh, but uh, given so much stuff happening in the market, uh, I think ideally it's, it's a, a case-by-case study, as you can imagine, uh, Carol. So there's yeah. no one-size-fits-all. Uh, you have to look at your time horizon and what you're comfortable with in terms of drawdowns. What I would say is that uh, the you know the tailwind of this. Uh, massive fiscal and monetary stimulus. And then I mentioned, I think fiscal stimulus needs to, again, make a, a comeback. But it's just massive on a global scale. And now that you have this optimism surrounding to the vaccine, I think that adds on to the, uh, to the positiveness that, uh, you know, equities represent. And in this kind of environment where everyone is going down to zero, you know, you want to be with long-dated assets, and there's nothing more long-dated than, um, you know, quality equity names. Right. So, hence, one of the reasons why I feel equity still, you know, once we get over the next couple of months, because almost everything that is of concern right now, to me, mm-hmm. seems to have a, a calendar date of ex- expiry. <laughs> you know, so you look at, um, you know, the second wave, for example. It, it is going to, we are going to know in the next couple of right. months if we are having... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, sorry to uh, sorry to wrap you there, uh, Deepak. Uh, really appreciate your time. Deepak Puri is Chief Investment Officer for the Americas at Deutsche Bank Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from New York City. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.